Welcome to the Richie Flow Nutrition Podcast. My name is Cameron Bork. On this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Stephanie Seneff. Stephanie is a world-leading expert on the herbicide glyphosate and its host of detrimental effects on plants, animals, and microbes. Her publications and book, Toxic Legacy, have laid the foundation for understanding the implications of widespread use of this weed killer, particularly as it pertains to developmental disorders and metabolic disorders. She has also contributed greatly in the fields of sulfur metabolism, statin drug side effects, heavy metal toxicity, and more. Stephanie was the first guest I had on the podcast back in 2021, so it's a real pleasure to be able to speak with her again and expand on what she's been working on. In this conversation, we center our discussion around deuterium, the heavy isotope of hydrogen. Having recently spoken with Gabor Chomalier, who is the father of deuterium science in biology, this conversation follows very naturally. I sincerely appreciate Stephanie's work as she has put her reputation on the line many, many times to pursue interesting and fruitful ideas that often clash with mainstream dogma. I think many of her ideas will be proven eventually as they follow an elegant logic. So with all this being said, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Stephanie, thank you so much for coming back on the on the podcast to speak with me. Um you seem to have decided to look into some of the most difficult topics and broad-ranging topics. Uh, last time we spoke about your book uh, that covers the topic of glyphosate quite um, quite well, quite in depth, uh, and uh-huh. you've you've become quite passionate about this deuterium story um, that I I've have. started to get into very recently. So, how did you first become? How do you, how were you first introduced to this story, and and what did you make of it initially? Yeah, well, it kind of has to go all the way back to 2007 when I got interested in autism. So I was seeing the rates go up. And for five years, I studied uh, looking at all possible different kinds of exposures they might be having and striking out. 2012 was when I heard Professor Don Huber speak on glyphosate. I have a book here, Toxic Legacy. This was published in 2021, so almost a decade later, having done a lot of research on glyphosate, toxic legacy, how the weed killer glyphosate is destroying our health and the environment. So I learned uh, how glyphosate, uh, first of all, glyphosate is causing an increase in a huge list of diseases that are chronic conditions that people are experiencing today in the United States. I believe glyphosate is the primary cause of these illnesses, of course, autism especially. And, um, and I learned about glyphosate's unique mechanism of toxicity, which I believe is true, that is substituting for glycine at critical points in certain proteins and causing them to misbehave. And I had even identified which proteins. I talked about a glyphosate susceptibility motif and which proteins would be most likely to be severely affected. And then to show that literature was showing, actual studies on glyphosate were showing that it was suppressing these enzymes that I would predict it would suppress if my theory was correct. So the dots are connecting extremely well. And all the features of autism, the autistic kids have a lot of issues besides their brain dysfunction that can also be explained through the idea that glyphosate is messing up these enzymes by getting into the into them by mistake in place of the coding amino acid glycine, really critical point that I make repeatedly. Yep. So I was in place with all of this information when I I actually had published a paper together with Dr. Greg Nye. He and I have collaborated on a number of papers. We've really enjoyed working together. And he and I are both sort of experts on sulfur. We both had independently uh, gotten into sulfur and the sulfur system in the body and how that's disrupted in certain diseases and how glyphosate disrupts it. So we've had a great time collaborating. We published a paper in the journal Water 
on sulfate and, and sulfate and, and you know gelled water and cobalamin deficiency and then linking it to glyphosate. We had this paper talked a lot about metabolism and how um, how glyphosate impacts it and how it can cause these different conditions and, and eventually affecting the brain. And uh, Laszlo Boros, Dr. Professor Laszlo Boros, read that paper, was impressed with it, reached out to me. So it was just a cold uh, email that I got from him saying, hey, you know, great paper. And by the way, deuterium is basically what he said. Wow. Do you know about deuterium? And I said, no, I don't know about deuterium. Tell me more. And so he and I have struck up a friendship and he's been awesome. He's definitely helped me to uh, to learn about deuterium and, and its roles in the body and how it's uh, managed by the body. And it didn't take me, it didn't take me a second to realize that the enzymes that glyphosate disrupts are often the same enzymes that are managing deuterium. In other words, if glyphosate is disrupting those enzymes, deuterium is going to be in trouble. So I became very excited about deuterium. That was in December of 2019, right before COVID hit. And I got into really digging, uh, digging into the research on deuterium. And then, of course, COVID hit, and then I got interested in COVID and uh, and linking COVID actually to deuterium deficiency. I believe that, or deuterium mismanagement, I should say. Yeah. Um, I believe that the, the people who are um, most susceptible to severe COVID are the same people who are being poisoned by glyphosate. And glyphosate is disrupting a lot of proteins in their body that would have protected them from COVID. And, and, and because of those disruptions, deuterium becomes problematic in the mitochondria. The mitochondria become dysfunctional in the immune cells, and then the immune cells can't fight off the virus. And then the really fascinating thing is what goes on in the lungs to, uh, to try to fix the problem in response to the viral infection. There's a massive response by the, you know, it's a fascinating response that takes place in the lungs. It causes them to fill up with fluid and all these things happen. I can talk more about that later, but basically um, that's an attempt, I think, to rescue the mitochondria of the immune cells with respect to the deuterium toxicity problem so that they can fight off the virus. That, this so that was a long-winded answer to your question, but I am super been, excited about deuterium, and that should be very clear to you. <laughs> yeah, well, I was just about to say, it must have been very exciting for you putting joining these dots together and, and having these epiphany moments where you're realizing that the things you're interested in are, are quite intimately connected, exactly. uh, or at least seem to be uh, in a very direct way. Um, I think it would be worth sort of recapping this, the the glyphosate issue that we spoke about last time. Um, maybe you can, I'll just give a small rundown and you can tell me where I've gone wrong. So okay, um, glyphosate is this unusual molecule uh, that is almost like a glycine, so an amino mm -hmm. acid, but it's got some extra stuff on it. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a little bit larger. Uh, not only is it a metal chelator, uh, it's also mm -hmm. an antibiotic. Um, mm -hmm. And it appears to be able to, in certain places like collagen, where it's very long and, and stretchy, it's able to jump in instead of glycine and um, interrupt the way that the proteins are folding. Um, right. We don't know, I guess we don't know what the whole implications of this, uh, this glycine substitution might be. Um, but, you know, our extracellular matrix, you know, all the stuff between all of our cells is made up of a lot of glycine-containing uh, proteins. So That's right. we don't know what the implications of this might be if it turns out to be true, which I think it's, you know, the writings on the wall, it'd be very difficult to argue against this uh, glycine substitution um, 
you know, hypothesis, if you will. Um, so basically we've got this water soluble toxin in the environment. Um, we can't get rid of it because not only do we keep spraying it, it doesn't break down very easily mm-hmm. and it appears to embed itself within us. So exactly. we're facing this big problem where um, we're not really sure what to do about this and we're not sure to the full extent of how this is affecting us. Uh, right. And it looks like not many people are willing to look into the problem either because it's a um, it's a big deal if you're saying, hey, this is actually hurting people uh, really badly. Um, is that a is That's that a beautiful. decent brief That's summary? That's very, very good. Yes. And of course, the thing is, the, the farmers at this point seem to be convinced that they can't live without glyphosate, you know, that, and they're telling the government we can't do without it, which is really, really sad to say mm-hmm. we're going to be willing to poison our children, all of us, but especially the kids. It really breaks my heart to see what it's doing to the children. And uh, we can't stop doing this because it's so essential for food production. That just cannot be true, you know, but that's what they're saying. And of course, yeah. the industry fights really hard and claims that the chemical is perfectly safe. But there are a lot of papers coming out in the last few years that are showing, very clearly showing evidence of, of damage to all kinds of different, you know, all kinds of different situations. So I'm excited about the recent, I think for the longest time, people didn't bother to study glyphosate because it's safe. You know, it's sort of mm. boring to study something that's not going to show any, any trouble. So they were convinced that it was safe and therefore they wouldn't spend their money trying to study, study it. But now that people are becoming aware that it, it is toxic, more and more researchers are finding it necessary to actually do the studies and to show what it's doing. And we're finding, um, they're finding a lot of evidence that I would say that I'm right, you know, mm. in terms of what, what's happening. Yeah. And I, I recently spoke to Kerry Gillum on, on the podcast mm-hmm. as well. And we mm-hmm. spoke about the, um, the class action lawsuit in in america mm-hmm. that i believe 15 or 16 billion dollar class action um right you know, that wouldn't have got hold if there wasn't at least some truth to this idea that it's exactly. causing non-hodgkin's lymphoma um right. and that's just one can one type of cancer you know this is a very narrow slice to what i think is really going on so yes um, and they wouldn't have conceded if they if they knew that it was safe so right it seems to me like the writing's on the wall. Um, how does this directly connect to this deuterium story where, you know, we're in an environment where basically it's very easy to accumulate more deuterium than we would have in our evolutionary past, more than might be uh, good for our um, our general health. How do these stories intersect? Yeah, so it's complicated, of course, and I'll try to make it as simple as possible. But let me Mm -hmm. start with what deuterium is, because I suspect a lot of your audience doesn't know. Um, So people know about hydrogen. It's the smallest atom, you know, on the periodic table. It's the guy up on the left-hand corner. Only one proton, only one electron, really tiny and incredibly prevalent. It's by far the most common atom in our body, and it's incredibly involved in all these redox reactions that, that are part of metabolism. It plays a role in just about every reaction that takes place and often an essential role. So hydrogen is very, very important. Of course, it's water, H2O, two hydrogens and an oxygen, that's water. And, um, and so it's, um, it's essential, of course, and it's um, a very important molecule. But so deuterium is heavy hydrogen. It's also an atom. It's a natural atom. It's found in nature. It's found in seawater, for example, at 155 parts per million. So it's, it's a, a rare 
isotope of hydrogen, same as carbon-14 is an, it's an isotope of carbon. And the difference between hydrogen and deuterium is that deuterium has a neutron as well as a proton and an electron. It has a neutron. And that neutron is about the same weight as the proton, so that makes it twice as heavy as hydrogen. And because hydrogen's weight is just one, adding one more is doubling, and that makes a huge difference in how it behaves. So it's interesting, and it's sprinkled throughout. Everywhere there could be a hydrogen, there could be a deuterium substitution, yep. anywhere in any molecule. And you don't know where they are, but they're randomly distributed throughout all this, all the molecules that are in our body. But our metabolism knows about it and pays huge attention to it. That's what's super, super interesting. Um, and, the, and the game that the metabolism plays is to try to make sure that there's as little deuterium as possible in the mitochondria. The mitochondria hate deuterium, and that's because it messes up the ATPase pumps. These are the, the proteins. These are enzymes that actually make use of hydrogen motive force. So the hydrogen gets pumped into the intermembrane space of the mitochondria. And so there's excess hydrogen in there. And then they try to get back out and they come out through the ATPase pumps. And the proton motive force of those protons spilling out is what gives the energy to make ATP. So that's the whole process of metabolizing, for example, sugars and turning them into carbon dioxide and water, and at the same time producing ATP. And ATP is the energy currency of the cell. So very, very important. Mitochondria are essential for the cell's well-being. And uh, the mitochondria, if, they're, if they've got a lot of deuterium atoms knocking through that system, they're going to break the ATPase pumps. They're going to jam them. They're going to break them. It's like sugar in the gas tank. I like to think of it as sugar in the gas tank. They don't work well. And that's why the whole mechanism of metabolism is centered on delivering as little deuterium as possible. And this when has those been protons shown, are pushed in. This has been shown, hasn't it, that the deuterium breaks the ATPase rotor? Yes. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah, there's papers on that. And um, yeah. it's quite fascinating. And that's the critical. And then when you look at metabolism uh, in a new light, once you, once you realize that, then all of a sudden things make sense. And, and I had been fascinated by the fact that for example, looking at cholesterol metabolism, and, and you find that there's this escort protein that brings cholesterol into the mitochondria. And then there are the, the SIP enzymes in the mitochondria that actually metabolize the cholesterol, putting you know hydro hydroxyl in there, mod modifying the cholesterol to make hydroxycholesterol. And then the cholesterol is taken back out of the mitochondria and then the sulfates added to it. So I'm like, why? And you have to put the enzyme in there too. So you've got to put all these things into the mitochondria Just so that to the reaction take out. place there. And then to take it back out, and it's like, why does it have to be in the mitochondria? Why does why do some reactions have to be there, and other reactions have to be in the cytoplasm? And I got interested in that before I knew about deuterium. Right. But I couldn't figure out why it would do that. Why would it go through such effort, you know, to uh, to make sure that this thing is taking place in the, in the mitochondria? Once you realize deuterium, it makes complete sense because all these enzymes. And I'm always looking, where is this enzyme acting? You know, where is it working? If it's in the mitochondria it's going to be helping to make deuterium depleted water, almost certainly. It's really, really interesting. And in fact, things happen in the cytoplasm for the opposite reason. For example, glycolysis. If you know a little bit about glucose metabolism, it starts with glycolysis in the cytoplasm. And that takes the glucose and turns it into pyruvate through a complicated process that involves a lot of isomerases and phosphorylations and all this messy stuff. It's like, why is this so complicated? When you look at that, system of glycolysis. It's really complicated. Mm. And the reason is because what it's doing is throwing off any kind of deuterium that happens to be sitting on that glucose. It wants to throw it off into the cytoplasm 
into the water in the cytoplasm and replace it with hydrogen. So it's actually scrubbing the deuterium out of the glucose at the same time as it's making the pyruvate. It's very clear. And that's something that um, Laszlo explained to me, and he's written papers. He's very much uh, aware of this metabolism of glucose and then what happens in the, in the, uh, in the citric acid cycle, which is inside the mitochondria. Yeah. The pyruvate gets delivered to the mitochondria, then it carries forward with the citric acid cycle. And that's producing NADH, and that H is a golden H. It's not going to be deuterium because of all the efforts of all these proteins that know how to avoid deuterium. And then that H is finally given to the mitochondrial inter intermembrane space through an enzyme called NADH dehydrogenase, which is an enzyme that has its own DNA inside the mitochondria. And it's made there, and then it's used there to put the protons. That H is a proton that's not going to be deuterium because yeah. all the different ways that you can get the NADH involve making sure it's not deuterium. It's super, super fascinating. Yeah, it sounds like the body goes to enormous lengths to make sure that deuterium is precisely where it needs to be and not where it mm -hmm. can't be. Uh, I wonder, right. if, is this the same? I mean, you're talking about glucose metabolism in, in in animals. I wonder if the reverse is same in plants. I presume that, you know, those 36 steps of photosynthesis are, you know, the reason there are so many steps is because it takes exquisite care to make sure the, the deuterium um, hydrogen ratio is correct. And the, the, the I no deuterium, right. yeah, I, yes. I, it seems to me as though, you know, if, if it's true in us, it would be true in the reverse in plants. Absolutely. And in fact, it, what's very interesting to me is the microbes. And I've been looking at the gut microbes and I am just so fascinated by the, um, the gases that are produced by the gut microbes. And, you know, people get bloating, you know, yep. a lot of discomfort. They've got hydrogen gas, methane gas, hydrogen sulfide gas. Yep. Yep. These are all produced by the gut microbes. And people complain about bloating because their gases are not getting... What's happening is the gases are not getting turned back into organic matter as they should. And the enzymes that do that are affected by glyphosate so that they get stalled. And then you've got the methane gas. So methane, you know, they've got the cows, they're killing all the cows because they produce too much methane gas and it's a bad greenhouse gas. They would produce a lot less, I believe, if they were not being fed glyphosate because glyphosate is messing up. There's a series of dehydrogenases that that are able to select uh, deuterium uh, pro <laughs> hydrogen over deuterium, but also yep. the very big trick is the gas itself, uh, because those when the hydrogen producing, so there are microbes in the gut that can take organic matter that has hydrogen stuck to it and yank those hydrogen atoms off and make hydrogen gas, H2, and then release that hydrogen gas. And that hydrogen gas is going to be really, really reduced in deuterium. I found a wonderful paper from the 1960s wow. talking specifically about this. And they showed that the hydrogen gas had only 20% of the deuterium concentration compared to the hydrogen that was left behind. Wow. It's a tremendous distillation process. It's able to get rid of a good, a good part of the deuterium. Really, really remarkable. So then you make that hydrogen gas, the gut microbes do, and then other microbes take the hydrogen gas as a reducing agent. They, they grab carbon dioxide mm -hmm. and they make methane. They can also make acetate. And both of those are really, really critical nutrients yeah. eventually for the host. Yeah. And the methane, of course, is still a gas. So you've got to capture it. You can't just leave it as methane or you're going to lose it. It's just going to go away. It's going to mm. pollute the environment. So there's other enzymes that can turn it into methanol and then formaldehyde and then formate. And you can go all the way to carbon dioxide again. So you can go all the way around the cycle and they do this. Carbon dioxide to methane, to methanol, to formaldehyde, to formate, to carbon dioxide, the whole loop. And that looks like kind of a futile circle, 
But what's happening is you're grabbing that hydrogen gas and sticking it on to NAD to make NADH at the same time. You're grabbing, this is a way to get that hydrogen gas back into organic matter, NADH, ready to deliver to the mitochondria as a golden H that's not going to be yeah. D. Yeah. Really, really fascinating. And those enzymes dehydrogenases are suppressed by glyphosate. There's a, a paper on E. coli looking at enzyme effect of glyphosate on enzymes, and they found lots of enzymes that were suppressed. A dozen different dehydrogenases were listed as being suppressed by glyphosate. That's fascinating. I know. I know. Laszlo is very well. I know he's interested in particular the enzyme fumarate hydratase. Um, but you know, you're mentioning that there are all of these enzymes that are not only affected by glyphosate, but are also critical in uh, selecting uh, particularly hydrogen um, nuclei rather than deuterium. Um, exactly. Is, is this is are these enzymes a way that the body is sort of managing the deuterium hydrogen ratio. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. right. Yeah, these dehydrogenases are very interesting because they're members of a class called flavoproteins, and I talked about flavoproteins in my book, and they have a very fine deuterium susceptibility motif. Yeah. At the place yeah, right. where they bind FAD, NAD and FAD are both able to grab hydrogens that are going to be gold, pure gold, because they're not going to be deuterium. And these enzymes, these flavoproteins, they have a very fancy mechanism that involves proton tunneling that's able to pass the proton from NADH to FAD and then finally to that to make water, for example. They can make right. deuterium-depleted water. Right, right, right. And, and they can make it and they can turn NAD plus into NADH. They can turn NADH into water. I mean, they can do all kinds of interesting things that are going to provide. Um, low deuterium hydrogen to places where it's needed. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I guess we're in the quantum realm now. And uh, this is something that I regret not asking Gabor is that, you know, we're talking about, you know, fundamental particles, basically, uh, yes. which takes us to the quantum realm. And I guess our conversation existed within, you know, standard the standard physical realm. Uh, are there quantum, um, you know, have you had to think about this in a slightly different way when you're looking into what is happening with hydrogens and deuteriums? Uh, sorry, protons and deuterium. Yeah, I think exactly. So proton tunneling, you know, is really a very special thing that is at the quantum level. And I think that is a crucial thing that these proton proteins are doing. It was fascinating for me to read. I've been trying to, the literature is hard. You know, it's difficult to read these, these papers um, that talk about the, the chemistry and the physics of, of mm. all of it. But it was fascinating to read about, I think it was the cytochrome P450 enzyme, which is another class of enzymes that have this sophisticated ability to select hydrogen over deuterium. And they actually have a, a hydrophobic pocket that sort of keeps water out, except that it allows a handful of water molecules in, like 12. It's like a number, you know, a very small number oh. of water molecules can come into that hydrophobic pocket and they line up and form a, a water wire. And then the hydrogen that's released from the substrate has to work its way through that water wire to get to the product. It's really fascinating. So you can picture the water molecules and they're being handed another hydrogen from the left. Now they've got three. They're supposed to have two. They have to get rid of one. So they get rid of another one that they had before. So it's like a semiconductor. Yeah, they're basically grab one, throw one, grab one, throw one. And what you end up with is not the same one that came into the system, right? Some different one comes out. But if a water molecule happens to have a deuterium and it has a hydrogen and it needs to throw one, it's going to prefer to throw the hydrogen because it's much lighter. Mm. You know, if you just think about having a heavy football versus a light one, you'd rather throw the light one. 
So the leaves behind the deuterium, and even if the one that came in from the beginning was deuterium, it'll get stuck. It won't make it through that wire. At some point, somebody's going to let it go, and then you're going to end up with hydrogen on the other side. So it's a really cool way to uh, get rid of deuterium is to pass it through a water wire like that, um, which is just amazing physics. You know, it's so fascinating. Yeah, so we're kind of in this in this zone uh, in history now where not only are we eating more eating and drinking more deuterium than ever before in our evolutionary past, but we're also simultaneously poisoning our ability to regulate this deuterium hydrogen ratio in our body, um, which sets us up. You know, I found it very interesting in in Gabor's book when he talks about um, you know treating cancer patients and then them saying my blood sugars have have gone gone low after drinking you know not not, not even changing their diets just drinking uh, water that's lower in deuterium that's really interesting and that makes so, sense because it's healing the mitochondria yeah so I mean clearly it's having much larger effects than just regulating cell division and and just playing a role in that it's doing a lot of other things and it seems as though you know wherever there's hydrogen everywhere um, I deuterium substituting where it shouldn't be is going to cause issues in in enzyme in in the capacity for enzymes to do their work um you know in all sorts of different things because it's you know the bond the bond strength is different the weight is different yes. the, all of the chemistry is you know sort of offset it's kind of like a whole different atom by itself exactly yeah and it's just randomly yeah. distributed and you, you need to con- try to control it and it's very hard to do that but one thing that the metabolism has learned to do is to make it as little as possible mm. in, the, in the molecules that are going to be actively passed around and used in metabolism get the deuterium out as much as possible and that's what the body tries to do so how does the body you know let's say we you know we drink a bunch of coconut water which is high in deuterium how is the body eliminating excess deuterium like how how is the body you know getting rid of does it come out in the feces i asked um gabor uh you know how how deuterium comes out of the body because clearly it's coming in and some of it's coming out and he told me um it it generally is selected in the amine group um so it comes out in the urine through amine groups in urea um but oh that's interesting i didn't know that i have not been able to find any data on on uh, deuterium levels in the urine, frustratingly, but I have seen that uh, the breast milk is low in deuterium, which is interesting. So when the baby, to feed the baby, you want to have low deuterium. So it's that's, a good low deuterium food. That's and uh, and saliva is high in deuterium. Mm. So the uh, salivary glands are able to increase the amount of deuterium they dump out into the mouth, sort of hoping to get it out of the system, right? So saliva is high in deuterium. And then the blood is somewhere in the middle between those two. Mm. between the breast milk and the, and the saliva. But I haven't been able to find anything on the urine. I think a sommelier must have something on the urine uh, levels of deuterium. I, I wasn't, I haven't been able to find it yet, but I should look again. He, he just, I asked him, he just mentioned that the amine group tends to have more deuterium in it. So he thinks that that's a way the body is trying to get rid of it, which makes sense. In the to urea, me. it would make sense. It would make um, sense that it would be in the urea. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was um, the thing. I, the theory that I have is that's interesting. It's about the gelled water because I believe the gelled water is trapping deuterium. You know, uh, and last uh, not Laszlo Boros, but um, uh, Gerald Pollock. Gerald Pollock is another person that I've connected with a long time ago, and he's a friend of mine. And he's really I don't know if you know Gerald Pocket Pollock. He'd be a good one for you to have on because he's done a lot of work with gelled water. 
and uh, he's done experimental work with gelled water and he has shown experimentally that gelled water um, makes a battery it pushes protons out and, and, and makes a battery at the boundary between the gelled water and the liquid water and I find that really, really interesting. And I would expect that those protons would be deuterium depleted, possibly substantially deuterium depleted mm. because of the fact that deuterium is heavier. It's just like it's more less likely to go out into the hydrogen gas compared to the liquid. Then it's more likely to be in the gel than it is in the fluid water for the same reason. The gel sort of binds the, the deuterium more tightly and it's the protons that become more mobile and those are pushed out. So I'm guessing that the... Uh, gelled water that lines all the blood vessels is trapping deuterium and leaving the fluid blood lower in deuterium than it would otherwise be. It's a way for a way to reduce the level of deuterium in the water. That's where the the hydrogens are going to be that can react. So um, uh, that's also an interesting possibility. Yeah. Well, I I I did I didn't even have to ask Gabor about um, whether he knew about Jerry's work because uh-huh. he brought it up to me. Um, he uh-huh. had he had just seen um, Jerry present at a conference, and he he seemed totally convinced that uh, what he's talking about is happening. Uh, and I, as far as I'm aware, they haven't worked together yet. But I know there are quite a few people out there asking them to work together. Mm-hmm. And I I told him he needs to send some DDW over to Jerry so he can test whether it affects the easy capacity of the water. Um, mm-hmm. I think. Most people suspect that it's going to increase the EZ. Um, mm-hmm. So we'll just have to wait and see. But I mean, it's to me, it's it seems like a perfect synergy of their work. You know, I think by putting their works together, we can understand a lot more. Yeah, I've tried to get Jerry interested in deuterium as well. All oh, right. <laughs> so so, I, so uh, I know he knows about it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I wish he would take a look at that just to see if those protons that are coming out are less likely to be deuterons. I would love to see that, that, that it's actually pushing out deuterium-depleted protons because that's what happens yeah. from the glacier too. So I have the evidence from liquid to, to gas and the evidence from ice to liquid because you, when you drink water that has evaporated from the glacier, that's going to be low deuterium water. The deuterium stays with the, with the solid form. So that's the same system, solid, liquid, gas. The only question is gel. I would think it would be the same, that the gel would also trap the deuterium. It just makes sense. Mm. Something I, I really wanted to ask you because you, you're quite a big thinker, and I, th- and I have a feeling you'd you'd be thinking about this as well. I w- became fascinated with the fact that deuterium concentration differs based on latitude and altitude. Yes, so uh-huh. the closer you are to the equator, the more deuterium mm-hmm. there is in the in the surface water, and mm-hmm. obviously the further away to the poles you get, the less deuterium there is, and the higher from sea level you get the less deuterium there is. So clearly, I mean, you're closer to the equator than than myself. So you're yeah. drinking water, <laughs> the foods you're eating are going to be slightly higher, slightly higher in deuterium than, than further away from the equator. Do you think, and this is my idea, that there's something to do with the environment that is helping buffer the excess deuterium that you're getting on the equator? Uh, my my thought immediately went to UV light because there's more UV closer to the equator. Perhaps that's mm-hmm. doing something to manage the extra deuterium that is coming in. That's an in. interesting thought. I mean, I certainly can think of an easy answer because, uh, well, light in general, of course, yeah. there's a lot more light. Light in general um, actually stimulates the growth of structured water mm-hmm. uh, in your body. Uh, it was infrared light, in fact, that uh, that was shown by Gerald Pollack in a study 
that infrared light in particular could expand this exclusion zone water, which is the gelled water by a factor of four, really dramatic increase in the gel and the size of the gel. And so that is also then if it, if it gets bigger, it's gonna be able to better trap the deuterium because there's more of it. So it could be that uh, you get more light at the equator along with more deuterium, but they kind of cancel out because the light is able to make the gelled water hold the, the deuterium better. I mean, that's just a crazy idea that I have right now. So it's yeah, well, I was thinking <laughs> I was thinking the light is also going to improve the mitochondrial function as well, um, which For sure. For which sure. is going to produce more deuterium depleted water. So you know, I just it seems the to other me thing this, is that it. I think my light triggers sulfate synthesis in the skin. I've written about that. This is a theory, another theory that I have. Yeah that it, it, it triggers, a, it, it, it catalyzes a synthesis of sulfate and sulfate makes the gelled water. And I believe that autism is associated with the severe deficiency in heparin sulfate, yeah. which, is the, which is the sulfated sugar that actually helps to gel the water. And so um, the, uh, the light, uh, more li I've always advocated sunlight exposure as a treatment for autism, but also as a general health, health therapy sunlight exposure because the light can help to make the sulfate which can help to gel the water which can trap the deuterium and therefore improve the deuterium problem yeah the the sulfation i mean it, i found it very interesting when i first got into your work that you were talking about diabetes as a condition of um cholesterol sulfate deficiency um so there's you know the the idea of it being sulfated and i i think everyone's kind of aware that um, UV light is very important for creating sulfate on the skin. Mm -hmm. um, so, which is why um, cholesterol levels tend to be lower in the summer when there's more UV around and mm -hmm. higher during the winter. So there seems to be this, this critical interplay between these things. I always found that fascinating that you were talking about this story when no one else talks about cholesterol sulfate. Yes, I was sort of one of the big <laughs> promoters of cholesterol sulfate even before I, I was looking into um, glyphosate. That came before glyphosate. I had already identified sulfate as a problem with the autistic kids before I was aware of glyphosate. And then it fit very well because glyphosate really disrupts the sulfur system. And I talk about that a lot in my book, but some of those enzymes that are disrupted by glyphosate that have that glyphosate susceptibility motif, many of the enzymes involved in, in sulfation pathways are affected in that way, have mm. a very clear glyphosate susceptibility motif. Yeah, there's there's nothing that doesn't seem to affect. Um, yeah, I know. <laughs> so I mean, we we just spoke about um, Jerry's work. Uh, I'm interested to know where how that has impacted your the way you deal with water. I mean, is there is there anything in particular you do with your drinking water? Uh, there's obviously a lot of debate about this mm -hmm. whole easy thing. Um, you know, I know. I've seen, yeah. <laughs> I've seen I've seen all the footage of of the you know the nafion and the uh, and the microspheres. It seems very obvious to me that some there is an exclusion zone. You know whether he's yes. got the chemistry right, whether he's got the structure of the hexagonal, you know things right, right. right. You know there is definitely an exclusion zone. You know I don't think that can be argued. You can argue the details perhaps, but has that impacted the way in which you deal with the water that you drink? Do you use any vortexing devices? Well, this water or... is deuterium depleted. Ah, right. <laughs> so I've been drinking deuterium depleted water every day for quite some time now. Interesting. Have you noticed yes. the difference since having it? I don't know. I don't know. I'm generally pretty healthy. So uh, right. I, I've 
might feel like I have a little more energy, but nothing dramatic. But even so, I mean, I just do a small amount too, because I just do just this one glass, which is only one third. It's because I buy light water that's only 10 and then I mix it with uh, two, twice as much regular water. Yeah. So it's giving me something like 100 parts per million. So it's a very small, you know, treatment. <laughs> it's a very tiny yeah. treatment that I'm doing just as a therapeutic maintenance kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I can't say that I've I haven't got I mean, I've been healthy. So I guess that's good. It, yeah. As you get older, you always worry about what's going to be coming around the bend. So, yeah, I mean. Something that uh, seemed interesting to me when I was reading uh, Gabor's work was that you needed to actually um, consume low deuterium food and water. And I thought, I wonder why why can't you just fast? So it's, it actually just seems that you have to take in food and water that has a low DH ratio so that that so that your body can you know start to get rid of deuterium and start replacing it with hydrogen. So you actually need to take in, foods and drinks that have low dh ratios rather but I think than just not eating really, at all really good point with respect to the to the gases and the effect of right. the hydrogen gas by the gut microbes and the fact that glyphosate disrupts the enzymes um, that bring that gas back into organic matter that's why you get excess methane gas in the, in the cows which is causing an issue of global climate change because methane is much worse than it's like 30 times as bad as carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas and the cows are releasing lots of methane in part because they're not able to convert it back into organic matter that can be kept in the body. And that's because of those dehydrogenases being suppressed by glyphosate, I think. And then, you, of course, you get the bloating and the discomfort as well. And you see that in the autistic kids. So I think eating a certified organic diet is going to help to heal your enzymes that are critical for uh, for the process of, of producing deuterium-depleted nutrients that can fuel the mitochondria. So I think uh, I, I like the idea of eating uh, low deuterium foods and, and good choices are things like um, butter and, and lard mm. and beef tallow, these animal-based fats. It's quite interesting that those are low in deuterium. And that's actually because they have a pretty direct path from acetate to, to fat. And acetate is like, it's the smallest um, um, fat. You know, you have the fatty acids, acetate, butyrate, acetate, propionate, and butyrate mm -hmm. have our one two, three, and four uh, carbon fats. And uh, those are the uh, short chain fatty acids that are produced by the gut microbes. And those fatty acids have a very short path back to methane. So they're gonna have very low deuterium because the methane came from the hydrogen gas, which was produced by the gut microbes. That whole process is super important for producing healthy nutrients for the colon. The colon loves butyrate, those colonocytes, that's their favorite food, butyrate, and it's produced by the gut microbes. And glyphosate has been shown experimentally to reduce the amount of acetate in the gut. And acetate then becomes butyrate by the gut microbes. And butyrate depends upon an acid pH. The, the, the microbes that make the butyrate are acid-loving microbes. And glyphosate increases the pH of the gut. This has been shown experimentally increases the pH, which is going to knock down the ability to make butyrate, which is going to starve the colonocytes. And they're going to have to take eat something else, which is going to be higher in deuterium. They're going to have more trouble with their mitochondria. You're going to get colon cancer. You know, I mean, all of this can happen. You have this inflammatory bowel. These conditions are all going up exactly in step with the rise in glyphosate usage. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. I mean, the, the gut issues are such a big problem um, and it's kind of become normal now to you know, have digestive issues to be uncomfortable after eating. Um, 
Have you, I, I mean, I know there are people out there who use um, resistant starch as a supplement to increase butyrate uh, in the gut to mm-hmm. help manage, you know, food sensitivities and things like that. seems to be very, uh, very important. Uh, and, you know, butyrate gets most of the, the cheer, but, you know, acetate as well mm-hmm. is, is very, very important. Um, yes. Have you, what do you think on having um, sulfur, sulfur-containing supplements, things like N-acetylcysteine, taurine, methylsulfonylmethane, um, is there a risk of taking these and not being able to manage the sulfur well? I know this is something that Greg Nye talks about. Uh, you know, is there a risk of taking these sulfur supplements, sulfur-containing supplements without, you know, perhaps the support that's required to metabolize them properly? Yes, well, that's the problem with sulfite because sulfite is extremely reactive mm. and uh, sulfite can get converted to sulfate um, by an enzyme that is probably disrupted by glyphosate. Sulfate gets converted to PAPS, P-A-P-S, which is a universal sulfate donor, if you will. And that is, involves an enzyme that binds two molecules of ATP at places where they have highly conserved glycine. So those are going to be vulnerable to glyphosate. And in fact, uh, sulfotransferases, which are, they take the sulfur sulfate off of PAPS and they put it onto something else to make, for example, cholesterol sulfate. And autistic kids, I, there's a recent study that showed that autistic kids had severe deficiencies in sulfotransferases. That's the enzymes that put sulfate on things. And that's why they end up with uh, deficient heparin sulfate. They, they showed in the brain, these, these same autistic kids, they had more uh, post-mortem analysis of the brain of a pituitary gland and showed severe, uh, severely low heparin sulfate in the brain of, of the autistic child, autistic person. I'm not sure that they were all children um, who had died. So, um, and then they also showed the heparin sulfate trans, uh, heparin sulfotransferase was deficient in these autistic people. So they both they showed both uh, phenol sulfotransferase in the gut phenol sulfotransferase in the blood and, and heparin sulfotransferase in the brain were all severely underperforming in these autistic kids compared to the controls. Really striking. And I think glyphosate is causing that. Glyphosate is messing up sulfotransferases. They have, again, they have a very beautiful glyphosate susceptibility motif. So I can find enzymes that are associated with diseases um, that then I can look at them and say, yes, this is an enzyme that would be expected to be affected by glyphosate. And in many cases, I can find studies that show that it is. So I'm really connecting a lot of dots when I say these things. I think it's quite interesting to to look at the chemistry and to look at the autistic kids and to sort of figure everything out from different directions and and looking at the actual protein and sequence and to see that that's going to be susceptible to glyphosate. Yeah, it's such a I mean, you can tell you can tell your your background in um, in computer science and uh, <laughs> AI because this that's that's exactly what it feels like you're doing. Your this analytical approach to things, yes. and it seems to be paying mm-hmm. dividends as well uh, with all these discoveries that you're coming across. Um, yes. I wanted to just back up. I mean, I mentioned a few supplements there before. It yes, you did. And actually, be... I think those are probably um, healthy supplements to take. Right. Um, if you don't have the sulfur sensitivity problem, sulfate uh, not getting oxidized and also sulfite, sulfite not getting oxidized to sulfate and also sulfite not getting reduced to methionine. The enzymes, in fact, that was shown in E. coli, the enzymes that convert sulfite, which is inorganic sulfur, into methionine, which is organic sulfur, suppressed by glyphosate in E. coli. 
Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, the sulfur thing is not really touched on very much. Um, but you know, it's a, it's a good reason for me to eat a bunch of egg yolks every day. Um, so this supplement, I, you know, it got me thinking that supplements don't vet the amount of deuterium or, or where, where the hydrogens are coming from in the, in the substrates of the supplements. You know, there's all these things out there. Think makes me think of things like NMN, um, which is, you know, getting a lot bigger at the moment. If, if that carries more deuterium residue than would normally come, you know, through the natural way of producing NAD in the body, is there okay. a possibility that, you know, we're getting NAD in the mitochondria that has deuterium in it when it shouldn't? Right. I know that is a big worry. And, and I, I, I'm interested, for example, in thi- um, melatonin. A lot of people are taking melatonin. Uh, melatonin right. is very interesting because it's, uh, it's derived from tryptophan. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it actually is tryptophan packed with an extra methyl and an extra acetyl attached to the tryptophan. To the serotonin, sorry, serotonin comes from tryptophan, and then yeah. the serotonin gets an extra methyl and an extra acetyl attached to it to make the melatonin. And that methyl and that acetyl are both going to be very low in deuterium because of the way the body hangs onto those and passes right. those around. So, so melatonin has these two wonderful things attached to it, methyl and the acetyl, that then get metabolized in the mitochondria uh, to, to deliver the protons. And so, um, if you take melatonin, I've been trying to figure out, you know, I, I start digging around the, the patents to see how are they able to make melatonin in the chemistry lab? And is that what they're selling? Because that'll be cheaper. They don't have to harvest it from some biological organism, right? Mm. When they it's sell all, melatonin. It's all synthetic. That's what I was thinking. Mm. And that means it's probably not going to have those benefits. It's going to just have the normal amount of deuterium that anything has which means that it's also just deceiving the body because when the body sees melatonin, it's thinking in a way that, oh yeah, this is great stuff because this came from this process. We know it's going to be healthy, but it's not true. That is so I think you have to worry about that with all of the, uh, all of the nutrients that we're taking as supplements. Yeah, because most of them are synthetic. Even amino acids, you know, they're, they're not naturally yeah. derived. So there's no regular, Glycine is another one, by process. the way. Glycine, you know, the glycine cleavage system glycine yeah. is a good source of methyls it can produce the methylene tetrahydrofolate which has yeah. that and the methylene gets converted to methyl tetrahydrofolate and that methyl gets guarded with its life right it's passed all around put onto the dna the whole methylation pathways to me that's a process of preserving those beautiful methyls you trace them back to low deuterium from the way that those protein those molecules were made the methyl comes directly from methane and then it becomes um methane thiol, and then that attaches to an organic matter to make methionine. And now you've got that methyl that's beautiful because it has a short path back to the hydrogen gas, beautifully low in, in deuterium. And then it hangs onto it and passes it around with the tetrahydrofolate, you know, and then dumps it into the DNA and attaches it to proteins. I mean, it's kind of thrown around all over the body, right? All these methyl groups. Yeah. And it's really fascinating with the DNA. And I was just, I was suspecting this and I finally found papers that show it that the DNA methylation, do you know how the methyls are removed from the DNA? No, I don't. It's hard to find the literature, but I found a great paper. The paper was talking about the fact that these enzymes that do it have a strong uh, deuterium kinetic isotope effect, which means they know how to choose hydrogen over deuterium. On top of that, those methyls are already low in deuterium. And what they do is they take the, the, the hydrogens off of the methyl one by one 
they basically go through that same cycle that I told you about with the methane, the methanol, the formaldehyde, the formate, the carbon dioxide. They do all of that while it's still attached to the DNA. It's really remarkable. Wow. And what they produce is succinate. They produce succinate from alpha ketoglutarate, which is amazing because succinate is able to deliver two high quality protons to the mitochondria. It's a critical uh, enzyme in both the citric acid cycle and the um, oxidative phosphorylation. It's the only enzyme that participates in both of those parts of the mitochondrial role. And it delivers those two protons into the intermembrane space, uh, which are going to be really low in deuterium because they came from this process with these methyl groups that were attached to the DNA. So I think that DNA methylation, part of what it is, is a storage form of high quality methyls that have low deuterium. That's fascinating. I, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about that, but you know, there are a lot of people out there who use supplements for methyl support. Um, and as far as I'm aware, they are synthetically made and these checks and balances, uh, are not, are not existing in those, you know, I, I, I use methyl support as well. So it's got me thinking, I wonder, I wonder how that affects this methylation pathway. If, if the, the, checks and balances for deuterium are not are not present it's fascinating yeah i it was something that i initially you know very quickly started to think about the supplements and whether and the difference between natural and synthetic is going to be huge if there mm. is in fact this notion that the natural is going to be very low in deuterium and i think that's true for yeah, the methyls definitely. especially and also the acetyls both of them are passed around you know yeah. And that's another thing that I was fascinated by for the longest time. Why does the body want to stick all these methyls everywhere? You know, it's it's really interesting. They have an effect, of course. They have a tremendous effect on the on the DNA. Mm. And, and so highly methylated DNA is a uh, is protective from cancer. And when the DNA gets hypomethylated, that's when you have a risk of developing cancer. But then in cancer, it's able to actually selectively methylate critical controllers to, to influence um, certain proteins to be expressed that are oncogenic that can start to cause the cancer. So there's a whole complicated process. It's amazing intelligence in the biology. It's just mind boggling how much intelligence there is there, you know, yeah. as far as how it knows what to do when. And I think that cancer cells are uh, able to help the body uh, improve the body's deuterium situation in a way, in a way by sacrificing themselves. Uh, cancer cell, very. I've been studying a lot about the cancer with respect to deuterium, and I'm really making headway on that. It's quite fascinating. For example, the cancer cells they they have mitochondria that might even be working fine, but they don't use them to make ATP. They rely on huge amounts of glucose, and then they convert the glucose into lactate. And when they do that, they take an H off of NADH and they stick it onto lactate, and then they send the lactate out to the world because they just throw it into the circulation. The rest of the body, you know, the brain can take up that lactate. And it can say, thank you very much for that beautiful proton that you delivered to me that came from NADH that I know is going to be depleted in deuterium. So it's actually providing the body with deuterium depleted fuel, uh, the cancer cell is, and then it doesn't use its, its mitochondria. So it can afford to have the mitochondria be sick because it's not really using them to make ATP. It doesn't, it doesn't depend as much on having low deuterium in the mitochondria because it's not using them for that purpose, you know, which wow. makes it less uh, susceptible to deuterium damage. So it's 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 more like a protective mechanism, which is what, what kind of what we see in a lot of diseases is that the protective mechanism is 
good for a short period of time, but not for a long period of time. It can't last forever. It's sort exactly. of pitching in to try to help salvage the situation. But at some point, it's just things are so bad that nobody can fix it. Yeah. And, you know, I think when you treat cancer, when you remove a cancer, now you've lost that the protection that the cancer was providing. And then you get things like a bad immune system. Your immune system gets harmed. The immune cells are actually going in to the cancer and they're not, if there's a problem with the cancer, the immune cells are, are not actually removing the cancer like they should. That's because mm. they're sick. They had to, they have too much deuterium. But the cancer is helping them to fix themselves, just like the virus is helping them to fix themselves in the lungs. And eventually, hopefully those immune cells can actually get repaired by virtue of hanging out in the cancer environment and benefiting from what the cancer cells are giving them. And if they can get repaired, then they can go ahead and take take away the cancer. So it's kind of a race against time to try right. to get that immune system in shape, good enough shape to be able to clear the cancer. And they won't do it unless the immune cells are healthy and they won't be healthy unless they get rid of their deuterium, which the cancer cell is helping them to do. So it's mm. really, really interesting, but it can yeah. only go so far. If you've got so many poisons, you just can't get to where yeah. you need to be. Yeah. This, that connects like really, really well with, you know, why the deuterium depleted water seems to be so effective for cancer, I mean, um, that story fits meshes perfectly with what you've yes. just spoken about. So, yeah, I mean, more the more the more you think about it, the more the body is just trying to, to go into self preservation mode with the resources that it has. Um, exactly. With all mm -hmm. with all kinds of diseases, um, but we just view it as the body's made a mistake, which generally yeah. is the wrong way of looking at it. It really frustrates me with the um, with the industry because what they do is they they sort of see a protein that seems to be out of whack. You know, it's like it's doing something that looks like it's bad, and then they'll find a drug that can keep it from doing that. Right? They'll poison the protein so it can't do that, and they somehow think they've succeeded in accomplishing something good, but they haven't because I think all the reactions that the body has are sort of alternative plans for how to cope with the situation. And it's really the poisons that have messed things up or the lack of certain vitamins and minerals, you know, all the different disruptions that we have because we're not eating well. Mm. Um, the body is trying, doing the best it can to cope with it. And, uh, and when we knock out certain enzymes, we're, we're, we're hurting the, the system that's trying to help, I think. And that certainly think... has to do with statin drugs, you know, killing the ability of the liver to make cholesterol, which I yeah. think is a terrible idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think that um, these prion diseases, um, like, like these tau tangles in, neuro in neurodegenerative disease, these are protective mechanisms? Yeah, that's a really interesting one. I've been studying them a lot actually mm. lately because I want to connect it to deuterium. I really badly want to connect it to deuterium and I'm trying to figure out how to make that work. And I'm suspecting perhaps that the when that these there's all these protein misfolding diseases, mm. these interesting proteins that fold in a certain way and, and they do perform very important things for the body, but then they can trigger this kind of misfolding. They, they go from al alpha helix into beta sheet form. Mm. Uh, for example, the prion protein, right? It, it forms these beta sheets in totally different structure that kind of locks up into this tight hydrophobic, you know, pile that possibly I think traps deuterium. This is what I'm working on as a possible theory that when there's too much deuterium in the cell, it triggers these proteins to misfold in this way, but at the same time to sort of suck deuterium out of the cell. That's what, that's a hypothesis that I'm working on. It, right. it could be completely bogus, but I, I'm trying to make that work so, <laughs> because I do believe that it, I, I'm kind of believing that everything has to do with deuterium at this point. I just see it so clearly uh, you know, the um, 
even the cholesterol, you know, metabolizing the, uh, all the um, hormones. When you look at the hormone system with, I mentioned the tryptophan going to serotonin, going to melatonin. There's also dopamine. These all come out of the shikimate pathway, which is the pathway that glyphosate famously disrupts. So you have trouble with the supply of these essential aromatic amino acids that are precursors to the neurotransmitters. But the neurotransmitters, I've been looking at all the enzymes that modify them. Really fascinating because these enzymes are typically enzymes that are able to select deuterium, hydrogen over deuterium mm. and enzymes that extract um, hydrogen from the molecule and make water. That water is going to be deuterium depleted. And these enzymes work in the mitochondria. So everything is looking right to say that the hormone system, the, the, these neurotransmitters, not, not hormones, neurotransmitters of uh, dopamine, serotonin, me, uh, melatonin, um, uh, what's the other one? Well, <laughs> I'm losing uh, adrenaline, right? It ultimately mm-hmm. becomes adrenaline. Uh, dopamine turns into adrenaline. And, and all of those steps are delivering deuterium-depleted water to the mitochondria. Yeah, that's... That, that just... transform those into those other things. So it's really, really interesting. One of the reasons I got so interested in, in this deuterium story was because it seems about as foundational as you can get. You know, the, the ratio of deuterium to hydrogen, you can't get much more foundational to that in, in biochemistry. I mean, it's there. It's always been there. It's been there for way longer than we have. Um, so, and, and it seems to affect all, um, all higher order um, beings. It doesn't seem to affect single cell prokaryotes. It's interesting, isn't it? That yeah. the microbes can survive on hydrogenium. I'm so fascinated by that. Mm. which also makes me wonder if the microbes are able to kind of extract the deuterium out of the body. I do think the viruses can. In fact, I read papers that showed that viruses actually bind the RNA and the RNA viruses binds deuterium. Really interesting. interesting. So um, it could be trapping deuterium too, to help to uh, support the, uh, the body's need to get rid of it. You know? <laughs> that, that seems like a decent segue. Um, I don't know if you'll be able to give, great answers, because I don't think we have great answers for these questions. But uh, you got very interested in, you know, during COVID. I mean, we it's good we can sort of look back on that on that last few years with the benefit of retrospect now. Um, what What is a virus? It seems, to, uh, well, I'll, I'll ask this first. Do we understand viral illness? Mm. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so either. Yeah. No, definitely not. And of course, also even just the vaccines. And I was aware for long, long before COVID uh, that uh, I, I was aware of this, that when kids get measles and mumps, you know, as children, they have long-term benefit in, in terms of things like diabetes as adults. It's quite remarkable. Just by virtue of having had measles as a child, it's giving you a decreased risk of diabetes as an adult. That is like really, really wild, right? Mm. There's something that was done with that infection I think that greatly improved the health of your immune system. So I think the I, viruses are necessary. Mm, uh, I know I know that things like having uh, natural chicken pox uh, mm-hmm. protects from um, certain cancers uh, quite, yeah. quite robustly mm-hmm. as well. Um, it seems like these childhood illnesses are a, a rite of passage for the immune exactly. system in a sense. You know, it, it is training and curating the, the functionality of the immune system and when we prevent that from happening, um, you know, we don't know what the consequences of that are going to be. I mean, we're, we're in, we're in at a time when, you know, autoimmune diseases are higher than ever. Yes. Um, 
you know, food allergies, all those kind of allergic things where the immune system is not functioning the way that it, it used to, even, right. even 50 years ago, you know, some, something's changed quite a lot. Absolutely. Um, yes. Recently. Uh, and I know you're quite passionate about this. Uh, yes. Particularly with respect to the connection with autism. Um, yes. You know, what have we got wrong with this viral illness story? Yeah, I think everything. I mean, I've re- I've definitely reached the conclusion. It took me some time. I have to say my kids were vaccinated on schedule for the most part. I got suspicious of the vaccines just when my youngest child was sort of finishing up his program and yeah. I got him to avoid uh, his last shot. <laughs> so, right. But I, I wasn't waking up until after my kids were grown. Luckily, my kids were grown before everything you know got bad because yeah, it was yeah. before the 1986 uh, law that was passed that allowed the c- companies to get uh, a get out of jail free card, basically, that if their if their vaccine kills the child, it's no problem to them, which is really, really frustrating. And after that, all these vaccines were rolled out. Today's kids are getting completely overloaded with the vaccine agenda. It just breaks my heart. And I think it's really ruining their immune system and accelerating um, the uh, aging of the immune system. And um, I, I got very interested in the thymus, you know, and the thymus in the child is very important at the early the thymus is this gland that uh, is at its biggest when you're when you're born, basically, and it does a lot of work in the first year or two of life, mm. uh, learning about all the different, you know, which cells are are, are your own cells and which ones are foreign, and, and developing which uh, proteins, you know, looking at the proteins to see which ones are natural human proteins, which ones are not, to learn not to not to attack the human proteins, but to make sure to watch out for these foreign proteins and get all this training. Um, in the thymus. And, um, and I've, uh, I did actually a deep dive into the immune system in the process of writing a paper about the COVID vaccine, which I, mm. which I find very, very dangerous. And we found some really fascinating things about, we've got a paper that's, um, we're still struggling to get it published, but it's right. got a very interesting uh, take on the immune system and the thymus in particular, and what happens with the, uh, with the shots, because the, the COVID vaccine in the muscle you know, it's got these nanoparticles and the muscle cells take them out up and start making this uh, spike protein. And they release uh, exosomes that contain basically, it's almost like a, uh, a naturally generated trans- transformation of the, of the vaccine into these lipid particles that are produced by the cell that can contain the spike protein and can also contain the spike messenger RNA. So they can be distributed throughout the body from the muscle cells. And then especially the spleen is where all the action takes to develop the um, immune response. And then those dendritic cells, it turns out that some of those dendritic cells that are have been transfected with them, because they come into the muscle, they pick up the vaccine, they're also making spike protein, they're in a mess. And they go into the immune system, they go into the um, lymph system and make their way to the spleen. And they're trying to tell the B cells and the T cells, hey, get some antibodies to this stuff, this stuff is really bad. Uh, but some of those dendritic cells that have been activated by that spike protein actually go back to the thymus. This is so interesting. I read papers on this. They go back to the thymus. And in the thymus, they're now going to start releasing spike protein because they're still making, it's got that message RNA, they're still making spike protein. And that spike protein is going to affect the, the thymus epithelial cells, which have the ACE2 receptor. They're going to pick it up. They're going to pick up the spike protein. It's going to make them sick. And when you make the epithelial cells of the thymus sick, you get thymic, you get thymic involution, and that is aging of the immune system. 
So the accelerated involution of the thymus in a child is going to be devastating. So I think that the, if they start giving the COVID vaccine every year to the school children, then God help us all. I really think it's going to be a very serious mistake. And these kids are going to have uh, accelerated thymic involution, which is directly translated into accelerated aging, period, for the body, accelerated aging. So I think that it's going to decrease the lifespan of these kids that are getting exposed to this. If it happens every year, they get another COVID vaccine. It's going to be, I don't want to think about it. Yeah, that's sort of been my approach too. I, I haven't looked into this very much at all because I just it's all quite overwhelming um, to sort of try and take in and understand. Um, are there things that you think people could do to prevent any of the untoward effects of of these shots? I know, yeah. I have friends, you know, who are naturopaths and who are trying to figure out how to treat uh, long COVID which is really the same thing as vaccine injury syndrome, I would say. And, um, you know, and there's all these kind of antioxidants that you can take interesting phytotox, phytoproteins that are made by the um, plants. There's a lot of uh, plant-based molecules that are quite um, fancy antioxidant molecules. Um, I mean, I can think of things like resveratrol and curcumin, you know, these are examples, but then there's a whole bunch of others that these people uh, know about that they recommend. Lutein is one that I've got. One of my friends is uh, very excited about lutein, which is found in in egg yolk. Um, And he thinks that it's a really healthy um, uh, molecule to help fight uh, the COVID problems. Um, And of course, I would say lots of sulfur containing foods, lots of sunlight. You know, these are all the things that I think will keep you healthy. Stay away from glyphosate, eat organic diet. Um, I think if you and soaking in Epsom salt baths is another one that I like. Um, soaking up the sulfate through the skin instead of relying on your gut, gut microbes to do it yeah. for you because they get messed up by the glyphosate. Yeah. So, you know, kind of buffering up your sulfur system because I think that's really important too for the lysosomes. Uh, the lysosomes need the, the heparin sulfate uh, to be able to break down cellular debris. And so part of that is to be able to break down the viruses. You've got to have working lysosomes and the lysosomes are getting hurt by the glyphosate and the other chemicals that we're exposed to as well. So you sort of have to just eat a very healthy diet, all natural whole foods, organic, uh, home cooking, you know, lots of fermented foods, um, lots of sulfur containing foods. Uh, I don't like a vegan diet. I think you should be eating animal foods, especially animal-based fats like butter and lard. Um, So that's kind of my program is just living healthy. Of course, getting some exercise, getting outdoors, walking the beach if you happen to live near the beach. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of my my formula for health and it's worked well for me. So yeah, the foundations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in the email you sent me briefly um, after we teed this up, you mentioned something about um, aldehyde dehydrogenase um, and you linked an article that talks about um, something commonly known as the Asian flush. Uh, yes, when, right. When you that's get a so interesting, of the isn't skin. it? Um, yes. Can you give me a bit more information about what what is possibly going on here? I think you, you linked it with um, deuterium dynamics as well. Yeah, that's right, because that's one of those dehydrogenases that are suppressed by glyphosate. And it's a very important enzyme in the liver for detoxifying alcohol. So ethanol is actually a really good fuel, especially if it comes from the microbes. Ethanol is going to be low in deuterium. And, and you metabolize it to acetate, you know, acetylcoenzyme A, which goes straight into the mitochondria. So it's, a, it's like sugar. It's a really good food in that respect. Mm. But the trouble is that it, ethanol gets turned into acetaldehyde, 
by a dehydrogenase. And then it gets, acetaldehyde gets turned into acetate by another dehydrogenase. And those dehydrogenases are going to be susceptible to glyphosate suppression, right. which means that the acetaldehyde is going to build up. And it's kind of like formaldehyde. It's actually sort of a cousin of formaldehyde because formaldehyde is the one carbon alcohol that's gone into this aldehyde toxicity state. And the acetaldehyde is the same thing at the two carbon level. Ethanol is a two carbon alcohol. And uh, met- methanol is a one-carbon alcohol. You know methanol is really toxic. That's because it becomes met- uh, formaldehyde. And formaldehyde is like an embalming agent. Glyphosate has been shown to upregulate uh, the, an enzyme that has plays a powerful role in detoxifying formaldehyde. That's because formaldehyde is showing up in high concentration. The, the gut microbes make it all the time, mm. but then they metabolize it right away to formate, and that keeps it from being uh, uh, dangerous. But if that enzyme, which is a dehydrogenase, is suppressed by glyphosate, then you're in trouble. The formaldehyde sticks around. And then you've got this toxicity problem. And it actually that combines it with uh, glutathione and makes a glutathione formaldehyde molecule that then gets broken down by an enzyme that can do that. So, um, And that's the one that gets upregulated, enormously upregulated by glyphosate. So it, it's because you, the, the microbes are seeing that formaldehyde, but acetaldehyde is sort of the same thing. It's like a cousin of formaldehyde. It's just at the two carbon level and it comes from ethanol. So if you're drinking uh, alcohol and you've got a weak acetal, uh, acetaldehyde dehydrogenase, dehydrogenase gene or, or protein in your liver, which might just be because of glyphosate poisoning, then that acetaldehyde is going to attack your liver and you're gonna, you can get cancer, you can get uh, liver disease and all of that. So well, that's, uh, that's ethanol, so alcohol becomes a healthy food as long as you avoid glyphosate. So right. So it would be good to know. <laughs> so people who do get the flush, who have uh, a genetic, um, who have genes that uh, pre- that uh, curtail the effects of these uh, these enzymes that detoxify the um, the metabolites. Yeah. You know, if they also are full of glyphosate. Um, that that is further damaging those. Their their problem will be worse. The problem yes. will be worse, and and the flushing yes. will be really bad. And um, over time, I guess that can lead to some very severe consequences. Yes, that's right. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, another thing I wanted to ask that I asked Gabor, but he didn't seem to to know. He didn't seem to have very much to say. There's a there's a section in his book. I'm sure you've read, I'm not sure if you remember it, where he talks about um, this single-celled eukaryotic organism that appears to lose its capacity uh, to respond to light in a circadian manner when uh, in a Petri dish of heavy water. This made me very interested because I was wondering if it impacts circadian rhythm to have a DH ratio that that is elevated. Um, and he also mentions in the same paragraph that there is a, um, a melanin producing, um, bacteria that when put in heavy water loses its capacity to make melanin or to make its its pigment, which makes me wonder, you know, I get a lot of sunlight, uh, and I never burn, uh, and I don't Uh have particularly dark skin, but I can be outside pretty much all day and never burn. Uh, whereas I know people who go out for five minutes and they're, and they're singed. I wonder yes. how how much this deuterium story ties into um, the ability to produce melanin and the circadian uh, regulation of gene expression. That's extremely interesting. I, I love what you're saying, and I and I can't speak about it because I'm not aware of it. I really want to learn more. But that's really interesting that the deuterium 
uh, is disrupting the ability to make the melanin, right? Well, it could I, I mean, sim- maybe not in humans, but I right, mean, but in these lower species, yeah, yeah. So that's and, very and we, interesting. We know, for instance, that loss of melanin in the substantia Niagara is either yes. a cause or an effect of Parkinson's disease, um, right? So you know. I wonder how much this is affecting us at, at those levels as well. We know um, deuterium ratio impacts on gene expression mm-hmm. uh, and most, the vast majority of genes have have some sort of circadian rhythmicity. I wonder if that's impacting our ability to respond to the day-night cycle uh, and consequently, I bet it is, yeah. you know, impact and sleep. And I'll bet and- the pituitary, I'll bet the pituitary has, and the pineal gland, sorry, the pineal gland, I'll bet you it has a lot to do with deuterium management I, I need to look into that but that would be a hunch that i would have yeah I, i'm suspecting that the spleen plays a, a critical role in um in delivering de- deuterium depleted water to the to the blood i'm mm. suspecting i'm working on that idea as well the spleen gets very affected by high deuterium there was a beautiful study from like the 1960s or the 1970s that showed that the spleen was very sensitive to to deuterium exposure in, in rats i think it was rats Wow, that's Which really interesting. To me. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. it stands to reason that all of these organs are very sensitive and very involved in regulating all of these things. And it makes sense to me that the spleen would be. I mean, the spleen is where you get all those dead red blood cells. Mm. You know, are metabolized in the spleen. Hemoglobin is actually a very interesting molecule with respect to deuterium because the whole heme oxygenase, you know, which oxidizes hemoglobin and makes bili- biliverdin, and then biliverdin, bilirubin. Bilirubin is a fantastic antioxidant. And the enzyme that converts biliverdin to bilirubin has a strong deuterium kinetic isotope effect. I always look for that, which means that the, the bilirubin is going to have really good hydrogens that it then oxidizes, just like glutathione, it actually gets oxidized uh, non enzymatically in response to oxidative stress and soaks up those reactive oxygen species, keeps you safe. The bilirubin does that. And heme oxygenase is upregulated under conditions of oxidative stress. And then it creates these molecules that are able to um, to maintain delivering to the mitochondria the low deuterium protons, you know, and protecting them from the oxidative damage. So it's really really fascinating. Every single pathway that I look at, you know, all these different parts of the human metabolism, I can say, oh yes, of course, that's going to help out the deuterium problem. That's why I think it's so so central. Mm. It just makes everything make so much sense. Yeah, that's it's fascinating how everything is connected when you look when you look close enough. You can trace everything back to everything else somehow. It is interesting, isn't it? I love biology. It's a giant, giant puzzle, and I'm still yeah. poking away at the edges of it. I feel sometimes like I can still be blindsided. I'll come across a paper that says, like, oh my God, I had no idea, you know. Yeah. Still can be very surprised by a new paper. So it's a, a lot of fun to be able to just rummage through the web looking for papers to read. Mm. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about AI. Uh, I know uh-huh. this is sort of your background. Um, <laughs> That's true. A little while ago, a friend showed me ChatGTP, and I was kind of blown away when I first saw it because I was like, "Oh, this is kind of scary." Um, w- what are your thoughts on on where AI is headed? Uh, you know, are we are we looking at a at a point where it'll be very difficult to discern uh, creative output from AI generated output? I suspect it's going to be very disruptive and it's hard to predict exactly what kinds of troubles we're going to run into with it. Um, I've actually taken advantage of a chat GPT. I've enjoyed chatting with it and it can really, really screw up. I've had it. I had a lovely conversation with it about taurine 
And it was oh, yeah. telling me how something takes the carbonate off of taurine. And I'm like, wait a minute, taurine doesn't have a carbonate. And I said, you are wrong. And it, then it apologized and it corrected itself. So it was really funny. And it'll give you, you say, well, can you give me a reference? It'll say something that I don't believe. And I'll say, well, can you give me a reference for that? And it'll make up a beautiful reference with authors and a title and a journal. And it's complete gibberish. Like there's yeah. nothing. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's hard. You, I, you can trust it on answering simple questions. And it's useful, I think. Even for me to write a paper, I've been trying to see how I can use these language models to assist in paper writing, because I would love to just be, I have a lot of papers in my head that need to be get written. <laughs> and uh, and I'm finding uh, some other resources that are built on the large language models. There's something called, um, uh, oh. <laughs> I forgot, consensus, consensus, right. it, dot something. It, if you just type consensus, you'll probably find it. It's a, it's a platform that, uh, an application that some people have put together that is supposed to be focused on biology and medicine and social sciences. And then, but it's better than ChatGPT in the sense that it, it, it well, it's different from ChatGPT. When you ask a question, it produces segments of um, text from various references and it gives you the paper. So it says, right. here's what these guys said and here's the reference. And it's all correct. So you don't have to worry about it hallucinating, which is a great win. And it gives you these papers. So, for example, I can find some interesting papers on a topic that I'm wanting to learn more, more about by asking consensus. And then it'll it'll pop up these papers and I can rummage through them and find one that looks, you know, grab it. And then another one is Scriv, S-C-R-I-V dot A-I. Uh, that one requires a little bit of effort because you can actually upload into the into the application your own set papers. So I can bring a whole bunch of PDF files, say, on the pineal gland, for example, and pile them all into a knowledge base and turn the crank. And it'll basically, you can set up a, a knowledge domain and then you can have a chat against that knowledge domain. So it has the very specific uh, knowledge that you've, you've given it to right. it. And you can ask questions about that. And then it acts like chat GPT in terms of answering the questions, but then it gives the link to the paper and the page on the paper where it found that information. And very and and that's always correct. So it's, again, it's like a chat GPT on steroids, where you can specify exactly the papers you want it to look at, and then when it gives you the answer, it can be very helpful for putting it into your paper that you're trying to write. So these are good resources that I found. Um, and then there's other resources that I use that have to do with the proteins because it's a great one. Um, a unit unit. Uh, <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> There's too many uh, to remember. Uniprot, U-N-I-P-R-O-T, I think, Uniprot. Uh, I don't know if that's right. Um, it, my fingers know. <laughs> but I go there and it, it gives you it's a, a large database of proteins and you can search a particular protein and it'll show you the exact amino acid sequence in that protein. It'll talk about some, some genetic mutations in that protein. It'll give you the reaction that it, that it catalyzes all very useful information for me, especially for looking for glyphosate susceptibility motifs, yep, yep. which is really fun. So, and another one that looks at proteins binding phosphate, which is super important, a really beautiful system that you can throw the amino acid sequence for the protein into the, into the resource and push the button, push go. And it comes back and finds places in the protein that bind phosphate basically. And that's perfect for me because those are places where glyphosate is going to do its mischief. And it shows you the sequence. And you can see there's a bunch of glycines there. And you can see that the glycines are the place where it binds NAD or FAD, you know. So that one's been great for me to find proteins that have glyphosate susceptibility motifs. So I use a lot of the AI in my work. And as a computer scientist, it's sort of natural. And it's really helped me, I think, to 
to put together some of my theories that I've been developing. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I guess it's all going to come down to responsible use and a, and a discerning eye. Um, I think so. You've got to be very careful. Uh, the other problem, of course, is uh, plagiarism because mm. sometimes um, the the chat bot can come back with a, a a lovely story about something, but it might be exactly taken verbatim from somewhere. It can turn out to be, and then you think this is something chat GPT created, so I can just throw it right. into my paper. Right. But actually, you're plagiarizing someone else, so that's a big worry as well. And you don't mm. know who you're plagiarizing because they didn't tell you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so that gets tricky too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I always wondered how you found all these um, these glycine substitution motifs. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's been great to have these resources available on the web. Awesome. Um, what are you looking forward to looking into uh, in the future? I mean, it's been about two years since we spoke and you seem to have done well more than two years worth of yeah. research. So what's yeah, sort of I, next on your list? What are you excited about? Oh, my. Yeah, I've got many different options. Uh, possible papers in my head that I don't have time to write. And I'm collaborating with these people. It's been great, actually, too. Um, but it's hard to pull together a paper, actually, that's coherent on a particular topic. So I have a number of topics in mind that I'm hoping to turn out papers on. Taurine is one, mm. uh, just on taurine and its health benefits and, and why, and then also introducing deuterium. I really want to get a paper out, my first paper out on deuterium. I have not published a peer-reviewed paper on deuterium. I've got so much information in my head it's kind of overwhelming to know even where to start. And then of yeah. course, there's so little known about deuterium that it's going to be very hard to find reviewers. So, and I think the mainstream is going to want to reject it because there's no interest. I mean, I'm really concerned about whether I'll be able to pull that off, but I do want to write about deuterium. I want to write about taurine. I want to write about cancer and how cancer tries to solve the deuterium problem. Of course, autism is still of interest and we're working right now on a paper Another paper, basically, or a paper linking autism or expressing the concerns about the COVID vaccines for autistic kids or for inducing autism in children. I, I really want to. We're trying to figure out the science there right now, and that's uh, that's going to take a while. So, mm. and I mentioned the one on the immune system, which is under under review. So, um, I'd love to see that paper published, but it's going to be. It's very hard to get these papers published, as you might imagine. Yeah, because, I can imagine. Uh, Mainstream doesn't want to hear about it. La, 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 la. You know? Yeah, <laughs> they don't want yeah. to know. So, so that's been a challenge. But yeah, I've, I've got a bunch of things in in mind. I, I might even I, I I dream that I will write a book about deuterium. I'd love to do that. Um, but I I need to have enough time. <laughs> yeah. Time is kind of a problem. So. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you've got plenty of ideas to work with, um, and I look forward to to hearing them, particularly. Uh, after they've been peer-reviewed and published, that would be <laughs> ideal. I'd rather them be. not go um, by the wayside and never get published. Um, so, yeah, I, I look forward to reading them and keeping in touch with you. Yeah, great. Well, it's been wonderful talk talking to you, and thank you for taking the time to talk about deuterium because not everybody wants to hear about it. You know? Yeah. No, I, I it's think not it's, an easy topic. I think it's important um, because it's something that can easily be, you know, tossed aside and, you know, oh, well, there's nothing nothing going on there, but there's clearly some very important things going on with this and we need to take it pretty seriously. Mm -hmm. um, I think so. Yeah, so just a reminder to anyone who's watching um, your book, Toxic Legacy, um, still one of my favourites. Um, Thank you. So looking forward to the next one. Thank you. <laughs> yes, I hope I can pull that together. Yeah. <laughs> that would be great.
Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this one. If you're interested in reading Stephanie's publications, book, or even watching some of her presentations on YouTube, I've left all the relevant links in the description of this episode. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can subscribe so you can get notified whenever I release a new episode. I would also like to encourage you to leave a five-star review or give a thumbs up if you like the episode. This is a simple no-cost way of supporting my work and help me reach more listeners. Please feel free to leave comments on my YouTube channel, as I do try to read through as many as I can. I've also put links to all my social media platforms in the episode notes if you'd like updates about the podcast, information about health, or if you'd just like to reach out to me in general. So thanks again for listening, everyone. Take care.